Thanks to Harry's for supporting this episode of Market Foolery. Guys can be hard to shop for, but Harry's, Harry's is the perfect gift. Trust me, he doesn't need another wallet. He doesn't need more socks this year, okay? Get your holiday shopping done early. Free shipping ends on December 12th, so act now. Go to harrys.com fool to get $5 off a shave set while supplies last. That's harrys.com fool. It's Monday, November 26th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, joining me in studio. Back. He's been away. It's David Kretzman. Thanks for being here. Great to see you again, Chris. Good to see you. We're going to get to your travels in a moment because it wasn't just holiday travels. You were you were working a little bit of work. There was, of course. There was <laughs> based on your Twitter feed. It seems like there was more than a little bit of work going on. <laughs> um, and we're going to get to the retail, but we have to start with the news story of the day, and that is General Motors. GM announced it is laying off 15 percent of its employees and cutting production at five plants in the U.S. and Canada. And just to be more specific on that, two of the plants are in Michigan, one in Ohio, one in Maryland, and one in Ontario. Um, That's close to 15,000 jobs. And as we've come to expect, at least from the stock market perspective, uh, we shouldn't be surprised that shares of GM up on this news. Yeah, and of course, we always sympathize with people who are losing their jobs. Obviously, that's a that's a big blow to those and a rough time of year. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate on a lot of levels for the individuals, the families, those communities that probably rely a good amount on those factory jobs there. So, that's always a painful process. But looking at GM from a business perspective. This is a company that needs to to cut costs. They need to find ways to cut expenses uh, and basically raise free cash flow and improve profitability. This is a company with an operating margin of five percent, a net profit margin of less than one percent. So, so they're they're right now really cutting a lot of corners. They're they're pinching pennies at this point. So. I think this makes sense from a strategic perspective. Uh, at first, when I heard this news, I thought, okay, maybe they're shifting some of those uh, production jobs to another market, maybe overseas, where you're able to to hire labor for a cheaper rate or whatever it might be. But it looks like they're essentially just taking that capacity offline and then just trying to ramp up capacity or utilize their existing facilities. Even more than they already are. So, from an efficiency perspective, that makes a lot of sense. If you have enough capacity with other factories, with other production facilities, then you should just focus on those existing production facilities rather than having several other facilities that you don't really actually need to supply to produce the vehicles that that you need to supply. Yeah, it was interesting to see that this wasn't simply a, you know, as you said, let's just cut these jobs, let's move them elsewhere. Uh, about 25% of these uh, jobs are white collar jobs. Uh, so yes, there are a lot of factory uh, jobs, but there are also some front office yeah. jobs as well. And as you said, scaling back the production uh, in a pretty dramatic way. And it's it's interesting and this was this was hinted at uh, a week or two ago um, by uh, I think his name is Jim Lutz, one of the the former vice chairs at General Motors, mm-hmm. talking about Mary Barra, the CEO at General Motors, and uh, her message to her executive team, uh, which was essentially like, "Let's start to look at ways that we can tighten the belt." And it's clear from, and I don't know if Jim Lutz thought he would that it was going to be on this level, but it's clear from this move that Mary Barra and her team essentially are saying, not only are we tightening the belt for our own business, we're doing this now. We're not. We would rather be early 
in cutting costs um, in the wake of the economy and the run that it has had. We'd rather be early on this than be late. We don't want to be the last ones to do this. Yeah, and GM isn't in a position where they have a whole lot of flexibility. This is a company with a lot of debt. Uh, they are burning cash, and as I mentioned, their profit margins are about as narrow as you can get and still be profitable. So it's not like they have a lot of time to tinker with things around the edges. They really have to address those core issues now. So I think in this case, they're ripping off the band-aid. They're saying, yes, we can simplify our product portfolio. One thing I noticed in their press release is. Seventy-five uh, percent of their global sales volume is expected to just come from five vehicle architectures by uh, the, the early part of the 2020s. So essentially, focusing on select vehicles or architectures and building production uh, facilities around those architectures, rather than having a ton of different types of vehicle architectures out there, which is just harder to have an efficient operation when you have when you're trying to produce every vehicle under the sun. So, really trying to simplify the product portfolio, simplify production, and in doing so, reduce expenses, increase efficiency, and this should end up saving them a lot of cash. They're expecting cash savings of about $6 billion by 2020 or so. So, part of that is lower capital expenditure costs, some of it is just cost reductions, so lower labor expenses, things like that. So. Ripping off the Band-Aid, as we mentioned, it's a painful time for those individuals who are affected and losing their jobs. But for GM, it's a company that really needs to do something drastic like this if they want to raise their chances of surviving over the long term. And I think if you're looking at automakers, two things to watch for over the next two months are, one, Ford Motor and others, are they coming out with similar tightening of the belt, so to speak? And two, we are less than two months away from the North American International Auto Show, which is held every January in Detroit. And I have to believe that um, this is going to be a topic of conversation uh, for the media at that event, whether anyone follows suit or not. I mean, it's almost like if you're a reporter covering this industry, if Ford hasn't Announced job cuts. That's probably one of the first questions you're asking their executives at the event next January. Absolutely, I think this move from GM it undoubtedly impacts the competitive landscape for North American automakers and potentially international automakers as well. Building cars is a really challenging and capital-intensive business. So these are companies with narrow profit margins and. You got to do what you got to do if you want to raise the odds that you will be around over the long run. Let's move on to retail, which was obviously the the big headline over the last few days. Certainly, post Thanksgiving, Black Friday, today being Cyber Monday. I don't even know if I feel like Cyber Monday is less of a big deal. I know everyone's talking about well, Black Friday is not as big a deal. It still seems like it's a pretty big deal, and Cyber Monday just seems like it's been extended. Uh, Black Friday online sales were a record, around $6.2 billion. That's up more than 20% from last year. And total sales on Black Friday, somewhere in the neighborhood of $23 billion. So, Black Friday still seems like it's kind of a big deal. Still relevant, although uh, <laughs> I saw a clip, I think it was from a Black Friday a year or two ago, but uh, kind of a news blooper type of thing where, you ha- where there was a news station, you have all, all the, the cameras and reporters who are in the entrance of some retail store, 
on on the 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 cusp of Black Friday, and the doors open up, and only one guy walks through. <laughs> <laughs> and for me personally, I've never been like a big Black Friday shopper, so personally, I just feel disconnected from the whole thing. I didn't even buy anything online this year, although I probably should. And Christmas is coming up right around the corner. But, yeah. Um, no, for me, what really stuck out is uh, the, the the e-commerce strength, as you mentioned. Uh, we, we saw uh, e-commerce sales up over 23 percent, and I think what was it? Total Black Friday sales. I think I saw up something like nine percent, or a, a healthy amount. Yeah. So that bodes well for for uh, for retailers, and I, I think that shift to e-commerce. We're still in the relatively early innings because e-commerce as a percentage of overall retail in the U.S. is still less than you know, depending on the category, it can still be less than 10, 12, 15 percent. So I, I got to think that. This is just another step along the way toward e-commerce taking a bigger piece of that retail pie. And we talk all the time about how important the holiday quarter is for retailers, but I came across some stats about how it's even more so for some retailers in terms of the the percent of annual earnings per share that comes from the holiday quarter. Here are a few names. For Etsy, it's 42% comes from the holiday quarter. Lululemon, 45%. Best Buy, 50%. And Bed Bath and Beyond, 54%. So, yes, Target and Walmart and obviously Amazon and others, they want to do well. But for those names among others, they got to nail it. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a challenging competitive space and I think the companies that have that online presence, they probably have a better shot of reaching existing company uh, existing customers or re-engaging customers who have been on those platforms before. I know with Etsy, that that that's a company that's constantly trying to to find ways to be more than just a place you go to buy gifts and make it more of like a regular e-commerce destination, but a company like Etsy sort of being the craft fair online Really, I think serves the the holiday market really well. So, so they're they're a company that I think they they continue to do really well. But companies that are only focused on the the brick and mortar aspect or don't have as strong of a e commerce angle, I think yeah. You know, as we're seeing, e commerce is growing faster than overall retail. Uh, so, if you don't have that e commerce presence, you're probably going to risk falling behind. Here's what you can buy uh, for some guy out there uh, this holiday season, and it's Harry's. Uh, I love Harry's. I've been a customer of theirs for years, long before they started sponsoring this podcast. And let's face it, most guys, and by most guys, I mean most guys, uh, certainly I'm in that category, most guys are terrible to shop for. We don't make it easy. I always feel bad for my family this time of year. I'm like, I, I, I don't know what I want. Um, and you can get the guy in your life something that he's actually going to use. You can get them Harry's. Uh, gift sets come in a great-looking holiday box, which I brought in here to show off. To And, of course, it's an audio podcast. You can't see it. But great radio. Trust, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but trust me, this thing is gorgeous. Gift sets start at just $10. And there's a special offer for our dozens of listeners. Uh, we're working with Harry's to give you $5 off any shave set, including the limited-edition holiday sets, which come in a gorgeous box. I, I, maybe I shouldn't say this, but last year, the holiday gift sets were nice, but the box wasn't this nice. This, this is a gorgeous box. Uh, you get all of that when you go to harrys.com slash fool, plus you get the free shipping. This offer is for new and returning customers, and it's only available during the holidays. And Each Harry's shaving set comes with an ergonomic weighted handle, and you get the option to engrave it. German-engineered five-blade cartridges that provide a close, comfortable shave foaming shave gel for a rich lather, 
a travel cover to protect your blades, and a did I mention the handsome holiday gift box? Yeah, it's <laughs> handsome. Um, and hey, if you just want something for yourself, you can redeem a Harry's trial offer to experience the quality of shave before committing. Get your holiday shopping done early. Don't wait. Don't be like me. Don't wait till the last minute. Get it done early because free shipping ends on December 12th. So act now. Go to harrys.com slash fool to get $5 off a shave set while supplies last. That's harrys.com slash fool. Because let's face it, guys are never going to buy new razors. It's not something we're very you, good at. Yeah. You just get the razor that you started shaving with and you use that for the rest of your life until someone actually buys you something like this. I'm guilty of that. Um, you, uh, as I mentioned, you were traveling recently, not just for the holidays, you were out in Las Vegas. Uh, because, as uh, hopefully as longtime listeners know, you have become over the past, I would say, 18 months, the go to cannabis. Industry expert, not just here at the Motley Fool. I saw that you were you did an interview with Consuelo Mack for her show. Yeah, for Wealth Track, and I I guess that's a that's big had, time. I mean, hey, I I was flattered that they asked, but yeah, Consuelo Mack and I had had a conversation. It turned out to be about fifty minutes, and it's up on YouTube if you search Kretzman Cannabis, or maybe we can tweet it out we'll, or something. Yeah, send me the link, and we'll tweet that out. Yeah, yeah, but it was a great. Conversation about a 50 minute conversation, just diving deep into the history of cannabis, how we got to where we are today, and then just talking about how we're approaching this from an investing perspective at the Motley Fool, recognizing that it is still a risky, volatile, and emerging space, but undoubtedly has captured a lot of attention lately. So it's an exciting space to follow, but then trying to Keep expectations at a realistic level, recognizing that this is still very risky, very volatile space. So, um, by the way, over Thanksgiving, uh, one of my cousins uh, lives up in Toronto. He's uh, an attorney, and um, he was sa- he and he listens to the podcast from time to time. And he said, "You know, I always smile whenever I hear you talking about cannabis because <laughs> our firm has been doing so much business with these because there are so many." Companies that are suddenly in need of legal help uh, on this front. Yeah, um, you were out in Las Vegas for what is the name of the conference? I know it's a huge conference. I just uh, the name is escaping me. MJ BizCon, and my understanding is that this they, they host regional events over the course of the year. So they they've had events in Toronto. I think they have one coming up in New Orleans, Miami, but. This one in Las Vegas, it's been going on for at least five or six years now. So, this is kind of like the flagship cannabis event. And my understanding is that it's the largest cannabis conference and expo worldwide. This year, I heard estimates range from 30 to 40,000 attendees over the course of the week. So, you really go in. It's not quite as big as CES, which is also in Las Vegas, but it takes up the entire convention center over in Las Vegas. So, you just have Hundreds, if not thousands, of vendors, and then thousands of people just going around networking, trying to capture their their little piece of the cannabis opportunity. A couple of questions in terms of the events that you went to, the breakout sessions, and certainly the interviews that you did. First, was there anything that surprised you, either on the good side or the bad side? I don't know if there was anything real surprising. I'd say one thing that stuck out is just the number of U.S. companies that are going public in Canada now, and that's sort of a trend that we've been seeing ramp up the past month or so. And you just have this murky legal framework in the U.S., which we've talked about, where you have 
now over 30 states that have legalized medical cannabis in some shape or form, but it still remains an illicit substance on a federal level. And from a financial or investing perspective, what's interesting there is that the major exchanges, stock exchanges, both in the U.S. and Canada, won't let you be a public, publicly traded cannabis company on their exchange if you're operating in a territory where it's still federally illegal. So, you can't list on the NASDAQ, the New York Stock Exchange, the Toronto Stock Exchange, or the TSX Venture Exchange up in Canada, if you essentially, if you have any involvement in the U.S. But you have this smaller and relatively obscure exchange in Canada called the Canadian Securities Exchange, sometimes referred to as the Cannabis <laughs> Securities Exchange, where they say, we'll let you list on our exchange as long as you're operating in a state where it's legal. So, over the past month, you've had a number of U.S. operators, cannabis operators, go public on the Canadian Securities Exchange, and that's their way of tapping the capital markets, kind of riding this wave of cannabis hype that we've seen throughout the year. So, companies like Cureleaf, which has a market cap of well over $3 billion now, so probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest, U.S. operator by market cap now, it's public up in Canada on that relatively small exchange. And then, some other companies like Harvest Cannabis, Dixie Brands is another one going public. So. Over the course of the conference, I was able to have conversations with a variety of executives and insiders, and a lot of these companies are the U.S. operators who are looking to take advantage of kind of that that backdoor way to go public and access the public markets through the Canadian Securities Exchange. So that was just a, a ongoing theme that 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 I recognize, and I think it's interesting because I think for a lot of reasons the U.S. market is more appealing than Canada or the other international markets out there. So you mentioned CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, huge consumer tech show in Las Vegas every January. You've been to that, and I recall from a conversation you and I had that. One time you went to CES, and I asked you what was the most absurd thing you saw. I think, if memory serves me correctly, it was a smart rubber duck. Edwin the smart duck. Edwin the smart duck. Uh, what was something that you saw at this cannabis conference that you, maybe a vendor had or some someone setting up a booth where you just sort of looked at it and shook your head and said, "Yeah, I don't, I don't know that that's going to work out." One technology aspect that I saw walking the floor, it was imagine like a big machine that pumps out what's essentially synthetic DNA. Uh, so, <laughs> Wait, so <laughs> what? That is not at all what I thought I, you were going to say. No, I didn't even know this was a thing. And and the company they said no, we haven't actually sold anything yet because they're walking me through this technology. And first, I'll say what the technology is. So, the idea is when you're drying your cannabis, you would be able to pump. This synthetic DNA, kind of through the air, it would touch the plants, and that synthetic DNA would essentially be almost like a DNA barcode that would be tied to your cannabis. So it'd be a unique form of DNA that's tied to your cannabis. So if the government comes knocking and saying, "Hey, we think you know someone might be knocking off your product, or there there might be some." Legal issue for whatever reason, you'd actually be able to test that that product that might be in question and see, okay, that cannabis did come from our production facility in California. So that's the the selling point. But then I asked, okay, has, has anyone actually bought this? Because it seems like a bit of a stretch in a lot of different ways. And it's like, no, we know we, we've talked with a lot of people, but we haven't actually sold it. For one thing, I didn't even know synthetic DNA was really 
a thing like that. And the idea of just having this chamber of dried cannabis where you have this machine pumping <laughs> tons of synthetic DNA into it uh, didn't sound all that appealing. Because I'm like, man, is that really like healthy? You know, if you're consuming that, do I want something that has that DNA being pumped onto it? So a lot of questions there. But it was an interesting technology to learn about. So I was just gonna say the the idea that you could you could bombard cannabis with synthetic anything, and that it would have no effect other than to essentially just mark it for government inspection. That seems like a stretch. Also, I'm glad you provided that explanation, because if you had just left it at synthetic DNA, <laughs> I thought that sounded like really a recipe for uh, like a Spider-Man type situation, where you know, instead of being bitten by a radioactive spider, someone smokes a synthetic joint, and then all of a sudden they have some sort of powers. I'm not sure what powers, but they've got something. Yeah, I think uh, synthetic DNA. Yeah, it raises the chances that you uh, you really go places. <laughs> David Cressman, thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.